Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hello, and welcome to Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan, and today we are catching up again. Uh, Matt and I have both been pretty busy. It looks like after the slow summer, things have gotten quite crazy and we were just going to share some of the war stories that have been going on and just the things that we've been thinking about as directors and filmmakers the past couple of weeks. So, Matt, you wanted to talk about burnout. Yeah, buddy. So, um, I think most filmmakers that we know are pretty obsessive. Maybe you might call us workaholics pretty typically. I think most of our friends it's kind of a way to get ahead and it's a way of life for a lot of filmmakers you know it's just to constantly be working and constantly creating and it's a thing that i think we all sort of uh thrive on and vibe off of loving your work is important to being a filmmaker but you know we all have our limits and i think it's interesting i am um, i've come off a real hot streak that i'm totally grateful for is totally happy about but i'm tired and uh, I'm tired in a way that I haven't really experienced in a while where, you know, I always joke about how, not joke, I always like being in development, production, and post on a project each. And it feels like right now I'm in post on like three three things, three big things, and then in develop on a two big things. So that's a lot. That's a lot to be sort of juggling, and I'm in production on two things as well now that I think of it. So, so you know, all of which are various sizes, and all of it just to say that, like, after shooting in the desert and eight episodes of TV and then commercials, you know, do you ever feel like, Oren, like, you ever just want to, like, watch some TV, you know, go to the movies? Yeah, I've been wanting to see Atomic Blonde for, like, two months. Oh, man, you'll really like it. That the 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 solve and whenever I'm feeling really crappy, like just going to the movies alone tends to be a big fix for me. So I did see Atomic Blonde. Yeah, oh, well, um, I must see that one with my wife. So I don't know how I'm going right, to right. do that. Yeah, yeah. I knew that my wife was not going to like it at all. So I had I knew I had carte blanche on that one. Oh, right. Cool. Well, yeah. I 
I get burned out. I mean, I think it goes beyond filmmakers, obviously. Any competitive industry, like, can you imagine, course, like, Olympian, Olympic athletes or any professional athletes, uh, you know, anyone, like, dancers, writers, anyone where you are constantly having to compete against other people, you know that if they're working 20 hours a day and you're only working 10 hours a day, then they have a better chance than you. So that's how, once we get a job, we're, like, all in and there is this kind of idea that I've actually been thinking a lot about lately, but there's this idea that in Hollywood that if you complain about a job or if you don't want to work hard on something, that you will be replaced. That it's so easy, right? Mm-hmm. We were just talking about that, like, let's say you're doing a commercial with a celebrity and the celebrity wants to move the date to a date where you're not available, then they will fire you and hire a different director. <laughs> no ifs, ands, and buts, unless you're Steven Spielberg or, you know, you, unless you're the, the celebrity. Right, right, of course. So do you think that that's, that's actually true or just an anxiety that you have as a freelancer? I don't know. I was talking to Joe McAleer, a producer that we know, um, about how producers always tell directors that they're so lucky that they got the job and that they had to fight for them and that there were so many directors that wanted it, but they chose you and that you should be thankful and work extra hard for that. And Joe said, yeah, sometimes that's true. But like when you were working with us, doing all that Quiznos stuff, like we were getting a lot of success from your work and the ideas that you were bringing. And we kind of were in every meeting when we were trying to pitch to other companies, we'd be like, look at all this Quiznos work that we did and how great it is. And that was because of you. Like we needed you more than you needed us in that scenario. Of course, it's always, always, always helps when you're like writing or creating or part of the genesis of the idea as well. Um, but today I was actually talking to, I had a, that meeting in Comedy Central I mentioned with uh, Kellen Parker, who said he will come on our podcast soon. He's a VP of development there. He used to be at Funnier Die. Nice. Um, and so he has a lot of insight and we've talked a lot about film and we talked about True Detective season one versus True Detective season two. Because I told right. him that if I'm going to show run a show this winter, I want to hire a bunch of different directors so that I'll have a little bit more control over the, the tone of the show. The idea being that multiple directors have to kind of match each other and I'm the one that will oversee that as opposed to one director that can kind of hijack the whole process in theory. Right. Uh, and he said that that's exactly what happened between season one and season two of True Detective. So season one was like mm. this amazing season. It was all directed by Kerry Fukunaga. And then season two, right. Nick Pizzolatto was like, let's get a bunch of different directors so that I, it's really my show. And it went downhill. And I said, well, I think it went downhill because the writing wasn't as good. And he said, that might be true. But I think that the director, Kerry Fukunaga, in the first season, he, his direction made even the not great writing feel really great. So I don't know if you watched that show, but I, I, yeah, I watched the first season pretty, pretty um, religiously. Uh, you know, I, I was pretty hungry for it. And then I kind of was just waiting for someone to say that season two was good. I was waiting for no, anyone no ever to be did. like, you know, give it a shot. And no one ever did. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, you missed nothing. But in TV, as directors, you're kind of taught that like you're much more replaceable than the writers, or they're really the the kings and queens of what makes a show good or not. 
that balance is, is just hard to tell. So I, I know, it, speaking it of hijacking, I've kind of taken this conversation off the rails from burnout to uh, competitiveness. No, no, I th- I th- but they're related. Yeah, I think they are related. And, you know, it's funny. You bring up another idea that I've, I've really been thinking a lot about and haven't talked about on the podcast yet. But, like, I think, you know, we have danced around <clears throat> the way that you and I have both dealt with the fact that digital showrunners and directors kind of have different roles on a project-to-project basis because we're most often shooting the entire season and, um, you know, there's not quite the same sort of training program that a showrunner on a network TV show has had with um, with their, you know, they, they just aren't trained up quite, quite the same way. Their, their experience levels are different. So there are always great writers, but maybe not necessarily as well-versed in production or business or whatever it may be. Whereas right. like a showrunner on a network show tends to be the whole thing, which which creates a vacuum that I think you and I both thrive in and most digital directors tend to thrive in where you step in and end up doing a little bit of show running and a little bit of producing as well. Right. In the digital world, it, look, this is coming from someone who has not directed much TV at all, but I feel like the things I'm comfortable asking for and saying, I would never feel comfortable on like network TV. Like I'm asking to look at the budgets and to look at this and to you know, try to change right. out lead casting and kill off character, you know, remove characters and things it, of that it's nature. It's not your problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's not your problem. You're there purely to execute someone else whose job is to keep an eye on the entire season and also understands the budget and all of those politics is taking care of all of that for you. So you're literally there just to like point a camera, make it funny. Right. And come in on time. And network TV and you're, you're talking about. Yeah, correct. Right. And, but, but, you know, I think that's true for your Amazons and Hulus of the world as well, to a, to a certain extent. But so you and I are in this weird world where we're doing a little bit of show running and a little bit of directing and a little bit of producing all at once. And um, we love it. But I think that I've kind of learned over these last this last year really in particular to be okay with the idea of producing a little bit more than um, I had acknowledged to myself before. You know, that that part of our jobs and our expertise and what makes us especially good at our jobs is being able to produce the same way a showrunner produces. You know, it's not like I'm line producing at all. It's not like I'm like on the phone with a prop house or a camera house cutting deals. But I'm there to make sure that everything is my problem. And so I'm going to be there to make sure that things are fixed and running smoothly so that I can execute. And that's a thing that I, I don't know that other people have to deal with quite as much. Right. I mean, it is, I think anytime the budgets, as the budgets get smaller, the solutions have to be craftier. And as the director, you know, when they say like, oh, you can't have the steady cam because it's so expensive, you can say, well, I know a guy that will give us a deal. Right. You know, which you would never do in TV. Or you can say, oh, okay, what if I cut six extras? That you can maybe do in TV, I imagine. Yeah, maybe, maybe. So all all of those different aspects, whether it's directing or working on a script or being more involved in production, I think that really all kind of piles up and contributes to burnout in a way that I hadn't really experienced quite so much before. And I think also in stacking all of the different projects together, you you know, there's a natural rhythm to development, production, and post that I've kind of sort of um, bypassed. 
you know, for every month that you spend out in the desert, you should spend three in a dark editing bay. And that's the sort of the way that I'd been living my life. And now I'm not quite so much. Well, I guess when you brought up burnout, one of the things I was concerned about with our listeners is I know we have a lot of listeners that are working directors. The Tony Ascendas of the world, our number one listener, uh, and then also people that work in other areas of film. But I know we also have a lot of people that have other jobs or aren't in L.A. and are sure. kind of trying to find work. Uh, and so I was trying to figure out, like, how, how yeah. this conversation is applicable to them. And so, I, I, so it doesn't just sound like like assholes whining. Yeah. Yeah. Like I get you, privileged buddy. people complaining um, about jobs. No. But I think the question is, is that burnout worth it? Like, uh, like, let's not talk about, you know, the these jobs right now that you're being paid for all of them. But like Squaresville or like. When you were first starting out, you know, we all got burned out then to like something, you know, I've talked about on the podcast before is that I want to make sure that if I'm like killing myself and pre-production financing, getting the job production, that I don't lose all my steam by the time it comes to post, because that's when things can really get ruined if you're if you're totally burned out. And that's, I think. I mean, I'm sure most of our listeners have worked on projects where they were so gung-ho excited and by the time they got to post, they were like in debt, you know, and had to take other jobs and whatever, and they just never finished the project in the way that they wanted them to be yeah. done. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that's a, that's a thing that our listeners can relate to. But I think that there's also, yeah, there's the situation where you're directing so much that you're super tired, but there's also the reality of like, working a day job and not having the time to write the project that you want to be writing or, um, you know, having to help, you know, your parents do chores or whatever it is. There's homework. There's always this extra layer of stuff that's going to keep you from doing the stuff that's really important to you. And I think that there's a difference between being so tired that, like, you don't have the energy to do something than lacking the interest. And I think that's a thing that's that's maybe a little bit new for me is that like I'm spending so much time on other stuff that like kind of doesn't sound good to be right. Well, I guess like waking up to write. Yeah, which of is course. Weird. When you have a paid I, job, of, of course, you're not going to sit down and write all day. You're going to be like, what? I can't write now. Got to go to work. Got to make this shot list. I got to go to this meeting. I have a scout today. But But I think the takeaway and the important thing in both circumstances is that whether you're a working director or you want to be working, you have to be developing that material so that when that work dries up, when you've learned everything that you need to learn at your day job or you get bored there or your gig finishes, you have something to take to people for the next time. And so that's that's just part of the grind. That's just the nature of being a creative, unfortunately. Right. What do you think, this is kind of related to burnout, which is, what do you think about sharing the other obligations and jobs that you're on with people unrelated to that job? So uh, I think a better way to say it is like, let's say one company hires you to do a job and you have a day job or a big test at school or another job from another company. Uh, and right. and they say, hey, you know, we need, we need you to come to this location scout. We lost our location. You have to come to location scout tomorrow. Uh, and you can't because you have that test or a you know a meeting for something else. How much do you share yeah. that information with the company when you're freelance? I mean, 
that is a real burden in the same way that like you can't say to your math teacher oh i'm i'm too tired to take this pop quiz <laughs> right. i didn't study last night because i was spending quality time with my girlfriend or mowing the lawn for my parents or studying for history. I like how all our listeners you know? are all of a sudden in high school. Yeah, sure. I, I have a limited life experience, Warren. <laughs> no, but I think that that's a universal sort of thing that people can understand. Like, you know, Crimea River is, is basically what any sane math teacher would tell you. Um, and right. that's true for a regular job or filmmaking. You know, I, I don't, I wouldn't ever be like, hey, I'm sorry. I'm... Well, I take it back. I, I feel like I have said, oh, I'm on another job for this day. And there's a little bit of like credibility that it buys you. Like, oh, you're in demand. So, you know, there's some status there. But that you really can't say that too often. Like it really, it wears thin. Yeah. Well, you know, we have a producer friend that has hired both of us many times. And he always gets mad at me. When he finds out that I have like another shoot the week before his shoot, because, you know, they're like, hey, let's have a meeting on Wednesday. And I'm like, oh, I can't have a shoot that day. Like, what? We're paying you. Why are you why do you have a shoot, you know, the week before our shoot? And then I really want to say in response be- <laughs> that I have to make a living and I can't your sh- your shoot does not support me for the entire year. I have to have multiple jobs. I'm yeah. like a freelance person, but I hold my tongue and I say, hey. You know, it was just a scheduling thing and it all worked out and I told all the producers about it, you know, so I'm sorry, but that's just how it is. <laughs> and yeah, I'll work extra yeah. hard. I, you just try to like tell people in advance, like, hey, I've got this job. So, you know, heads up. Right. And also I try to talk to them about whether or not it's first position or not. Um, well, but is there such a thing? Here's a question, though. Let, let, to those people that don't know what first position means, what, what does it mean? So first position means that um, you typically on a contractual basis prioritize the project at hand exclusively. So I could be shooting a spot for someone else, but if the the person who has first position is like, hey, we need to do a casting call that day, you have to do it, right? Like that's the idea. So basically it's priority. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's dibs, right? Right, right. Typically... um, you know, producers understand and like won't really pull that unless it's something very, very serious. You know, if Michael Jordan is going to be in your spot, you make time for him. And right. his, his it's, it's much more common with actors schedule. that you can't shoot without yeah. them and you have a whole crew waiting yeah, but for them. You know, I do know that there are people who, um, from a director's standpoint, like you have to prioritize notes and meetings and all of that like it is a real thing for sure and it's something that's you know producers tend to be a little loose with you on just because they want to play ball and they understand like everyone's freelance but also like if it's in your contract it's um that's for real there's there's no there's legal precedent there basically you promised to make them the priority and and certain circumstances to not work on something else to have you exclusively Right. Well, I find that freelance, other freelancers are much more excusing or are much more understanding of me working on multiple jobs than salaried people, full-time people. Absolutely. Uh, I was going to say with crew, like I, I tend to be pretty lax with a crew member who's has to take a call for 
the job that they're up next on or have just wrapped or like they need to book gear, all of that stuff. You'll see your camera team in particular will be texting an awful lot. And like maybe they're booking someone for you or maybe they're booking someone for the next job. But like that personal network is really important. And if they're texting on your set for the next job, that means that they had to do that for you on the previous job. So I I tend to be pretty lax on that sort of stuff. As long as people are in tune and paying attention and when I'm ready to shoot, they are. Yeah, but a crew member is different than like an actor. Like you don't want an actor like rehearsing for their shoot tomorrow when they're on your shoot because you want them to be in the mindset for your shoot, you know? I I really don't want them to be on their phone. That's a thing that's more and more common, especially with influencers. (laughs) Right. Well, good luck stopping them. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I've been finding it increasingly difficult. And I'm sure everyone does this, but like keeping a calendar is just so, so, so important. And then just also kind of communicating your availability is so important. It's tricky, this freelance this freelance life. And unfortunately, you don't make yeah. enough money from any one job to like turn down all the other jobs. And there's also this like real fear of turning down a job and not ever being approached to take another job from the same producer. Yeah. And so you know I, that they're going to replace you, right? Like if you, if you turn it down, right. If Oren, you turn it down and then like I say yes to it, then, and it goes well, then I'm just their guy now. Right. I, the, well, so I'm I've, the I've one had who gets the calls. multiple experiences on the other side of things where I worked with this producer and one time the, uh, the wardrobe person was complaining that she didn't have time to do the shopping because she had this other shoot. She had to go to Warner brothers for this and universal studios for this. And she's just not going to have time to pick this up. So if like we could send a PA to do that and our producer was like so pissed off, she's like, I don't give two shits about your other shoot. That's your problem. That's not my problem. You go get that stuff because you are working for us and it's like your job to get that stuff. And then she never hired her ever again. And I was like, hmm, I mean, she was just kind of being honest with us and we can't get mad at her. I mean, what are we giving her? Like a couple thousand dollars? Like she can't, she needs to do like 10 of these jobs a month, you know? I don't know. It's just really frustrating because salaried people just never think about the day rate, you know, that that just because you're paying someone a day rate, that doesn't mean they're getting it every day, you know, like you are. Right, right, exactly. In the back of my head, when I feel like a salaried person is taking advantage, I'm always just like, well, would you consider not taking a paycheck this week? Because right. we really need it for the production budget. Yeah, Kara, my wife and just did this no. writing job, and they asked her to, they, you know, the whole creative change, and they're like, hey, you know, you did a great job. We loved everything you did, but we want to change all the scripts, and can you go and rewrite them? And she was like, well, okay, what's the how much will I get paid to rewrite them? They're like, oh, well, it's just like part of the original thing. We don't really have any extra money, but we wanted you to do it because we loved your work. And she was, I was like, don't do it. Like those people that are telling you to write the, (laughs) rewrite this, like they're all getting paid every day. So it's not fair (laughs) that they're getting paid and you're not getting paid. That's how she was blacklisted in Hollywood. Anyway. Well, yeah. Being burned out, man. It's a thing. Yeah, man. Have you ever had it? Have you ever felt too burnt out to want to work yeah i mean you know i hate writing (laughs) like i had to write a treatment last night and it was like 10 p.m and i hadn't started yet and it was due last night 
<laughs> so, you know, I'm like, I would do anything else in the world and sit down and write a treatment, but I did it. Uh, but no, I mean, I've never, I've liked, I've enjoyed taking like a couple of days off here and there, but you know, I really like my work. Yeah. So me too. I don't know what's wrong with me. I mean, I'm just I get it. You're just tired. And you have, I, I think your big problem now, if I was in your shoes, is that you have, you're on, in post on three different projects and there's no way you can give them all a hundred percent of your attention. Not to mention you're in pre-production on other projects and writing your own stuff at the same time. So you're in a situation where you really have to sit there and think like, hey, look, I did these three projects. I think this is the one that has the best potential to be amazing or that I connect with the most or that's in my voice or that will get me the next job. And this is the one I'm going to really put time in. And the other ones I'm kind of going to phone it in or defer to other people on that project. Well, the good news is is that they're all on different schedules, so it's not like every day is a different project, you know? But um, right. I think that's maybe part of it is that, like, the, the decision to not phone it in on any of them has been a little taxing, basically. Yeah. You got to phone it in. <laughs> <laughs> Phoning it in is... Hey, do you that's, think that's a Hollywood term? Because never, I'd never heard it before I moved here, but it's, like, a really oh, common thing that people say. Yeah. Especially with actors... Basically, any creative work, I think, when someone feels like they're just going through the motions, but they don't care. Right? You know, it's funny. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I don't really believe in it, honestly. Like, I don't believe that that people really do it very often. Like, I, you know, you hear stories of, like, Tom Arnold phoning it in or something like that. But for the most part, like, our jobs are too hard. It would be insane to phone it in. It would be insane to commit... 10, 20 years of your life in a super competitive industry that's really thankless and hard and odds are against you for succeeding in the first place to like get there, do it, love it, exert so much of yourself, sacrifice so much, and then get there and be like, nah, I'm not really going to try. Like, that's insane. Yeah. I I don't think I've ever met a person who's. That don't seem to really want to be there. Not necessarily I, an actor, I but would maybe say, like a PA. I, I don't think I've ever had a PA. I've had PAs who really wanted to be there and didn't know what they were doing. And I'm a-okay with that. But I, don't, I, I genuinely don't know that I've ever... I, I've had sound guys who maybe, you know... Yeah, and the sound guys are notoriously not. high. So stoked. Right? High or like grumpy. Or grumpy, you know. Because they're mm-hmm. shit on, basically. Yeah. Yeah, well, but again, for the most part, yeah, you know, everybody likes it. Well... I have something else. I we didn't prepare for this, but yeah, I've me. been doing casting yeah. this week for these commercials, and we're casting a lot of roles, ten roles, and so I'm having the casting director put everyone on tape. Uh, have you ever cast someone off tape, like not cat, like done, yeah. like watched everyone audition on tape instead of being in the room with them? For sure, yeah. And do you feel like you have any obligation to watch their entire audition? One hundred percent, no. No, no, absolutely not. Sorry, actors. Um, once you know whether they're like, if they're a yes or a possible, keep watching. But if you don't, if it doesn't click with you, just move on. So if they did two takes, right, and you, don't, the, you don't like their first take, you won't go to their second take. It depends on why you don't like their first take. If you don't like their first take because their instincts are wrong and the, their read was wrong, but like they have a cool look and an interesting vibe and 
you see that sort of spark and potential there, yeah, of course I'll watch a second take. But if like they're wrong, if they're not right for the role, and that's something you understand fundamentally, you have to move on. Yeah, you know, you're I not doing I anyone. I always feel favors. really bad. It takes me so long to go through casting because I don't watch a hundred percent of everything, but I will almost watch, always try to watch all the takes because I think, look, if they did three takes of this then maybe they're trying different things in the second and third take. And they drove to the audition and waited and auditioned and studied the lines, you know, before they went in there and all that for free. And if I'm just like happen to be eating like a spicy sandwich and I have to run to get a glass of water <laughs> while I'm watching their tape. Well, like, that's different. That's different. Yeah. Like if you're, you have to be, you're paying attention, but as soon as you pay attention and you realize, oh, this isn't right, move on. Yeah, I guess it's just, I just feel bad. I'm doing this, you know, these spots are SAG commercials, so we were getting all these really great actors, but so many of them look like almost exactly the same. There's like sure. a lot of... But, but yeah, I, I feel bad for them because after a while, I'm just like not paying very close attention anymore. Well, that's different, but I'm saying if you if you're watching an audition and it's bad... And then you click to the next one and it's bad also. And then you sit through the third one and that's bad. You're just wasting your own time. Like no one is feeling better because you watched three bad auditions when you knew early on you weren't going to cast this person. Like who's helped by that? Well, I guess I keep thinking about when we had Mora on the podcast and remember my friend Dave auditioned for her and she said she didn't really like his first read and then because he was my friend, she had him do a second read and then she really liked him and she ended up casting him. So it's like, you can just do things like the actors have no idea what we're going for. They're just getting some sides and maybe like one line of direction and they're just trying to guess. And I guess I'm just trying to like give them more of a chance. I'm trying to pay them back for coming to the audition, but yeah, I I love that idea. And I'm not saying don't be open to surprising yourself or letting an actor surprise you, but I am saying that um, once you know, yeah. no one no one benefits from you wasting your time. That's all. Right. Well, for these spots that I'm doing now, like a new direction we've been thinking of go- of doing, going is like casting really interesting looking people. So yeah. I feel a little bit better because I'll be like, oh, this is just like a plain Jane looking person. Next, next, next. Like I'm trying to exclude people based on looks, which is like really jerky, but I feel like that's more valid than excluding them based on their first take of their performance. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a ton of different reasons why you can evaluate someone, right? Like you can say like, oh, I'm casting for this person to play this person's mother. And I already have the daughter picked and like, they don't look anything alike and they're a bad actor. So I'm done. Right. Or like I oftentimes I'm always looking to cast more unique and distinctive looking faces and so if someone is too conventional, whether they're good looking or something else, they just kind of look like every other cast member. I just can't have that. You know, like I want to have a v- variety in my look, especially with a commercial spot. So like going for someone who looks more unique than, you know, an underwear model, you know, as soon as you pull up right. that underwear model and he looks like a, you know, don't worry, those people are going to be fine. They look great. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, did you cast your Kentucky spots or were they already cast? I did. Yeah, I did. And you did that in Kentucky? 
Uh, no, I cast out here in LA. Oh. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.